welcome to a new episode of From the Newsroom, the weekly podcast from the Holland Sentinel. I'm managing editor Audra Gamble, and today I'm joined by three of our lovely reporters. Um, today I'm joined by our education reporter, Mitchell Boatman. How's it going, Mitch? It's going well. How are you? I'm pretty well myself, and I'm also joined by our politics reporter, Arpen Lobo. How's it going over there, Arpen? I'm good, Audra. Thanks. Absolutely. And we are also joined by our business reporter extraordinaire, Cassandra Lybrink. How's it going, Cassie? It is going. Excited for a holiday weekend. Yes, very much so. <laughs> All right. Um, so in, in our, re- our weekly roundup today, um, we're going to talk about three very different but um, equally important local stories that we've been working on um, in our newsroom. So I'm going to start with you, Mitch, with some um, very, you know, I think momentous education news for all of our, our students and families in the area. We have seen kind of this like almost mass exodus of kind of long-term superintendents in, in not just the Holland area, but, you know, Ottawa County and, and also um, the, the surrounding sort of West Michigan area in the last, I'd say, year or so. Um, and that has not... Um, you know, been been any different for our, our Holland districts. So you talked to, to two major superintendents this week that are that are on their way out or, or have already left. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it was kind of the, the last wave of that exodus you're talking about. The last, you know, we've known about these retirements for a while, but Wednesday of this week was the official last day for Holland Public Superintendent Brian Davis and Zealand Public Superintendent Cal DeKuyper. So I had a chance to, you know, get one last phone call in with them and just kind of speak with them and have them reflect on their careers and, and look forward a little bit. So it was between them, I think we're looking at about 22 years as superintendent just in the current roles they were at. Um, Cal also had experience as a superintendent in Ludington. So, you know, a lot of uh, educational knowledge uh, in general and just in the area specifically uh, kind of ushered out on Wednesday. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you have to imagine that um, it has been incredibly challenging for educators for the last year and a half to, you know, make all of these shifts with with COVID-19 and virtual school and then not virtual school and then sometimes a mix of, you know, all of those things. Um, it certainly has taken um, a toll on, on the students and, and the staff. And I'm sure that having those longtime leaders has been a comfort to, to those institutions. Um, you know, in, in terms of moving forward without that, that sort of institutional knowledge, where are these two districts at in terms of new superintendents and, and moving forward? Yeah, so uh, both had the new superintendents start yesterday, Thursday, July 1. And so uh, over at Holland Public, it's Shaney Keelan coming in from uh, Waukegan Community Unit School District number 60, which is just... Yeah, we all know that one. (laughs) Very long for an official name, but uh, it's a district of about, I just looked it up a little bit ago, it's like 16,000 kids, so a pretty huge district. Um, So she started uh, yesterday, I had a chance to talk to her on her first day, and and she said she's just really excited to get to know people and kind of just listen and learn and get to know the district as she comes in. And then in Zealand, it's uh, more of a, I guess, natural transition. Uh, they went with an internal candidate, uh, Brandy Mendham. Uh, she's been the assistant superintendent for curriculum over there for a number of years. Uh, so, you know, she's obviously been working 
speaking with Cal over the last couple of months since she was chosen and kind of officially started yesterday as well. So, um, but both seem to be you know, really excited to get started in these new roles. And uh, it looks like both districts are going to be able to just you know, keep doing the great things that they've had going on. So when you had these, you know, we call them sort of exit interviews of, of people that have been in, in roles for quite a length of time. What really struck you about these two educators as, as they left their posts and what they had to say about, you know, the impact that they've had on these two districts? Yeah, you know, and I, I asked each of them kind of what will be the thing that they miss the most, uh, you know, come next, you know, late August, early September when school gets going again. And without hesitation, they both immediately, you know, went to, you know, just seeing kids entering classrooms, talking to the kids and the teachers and, and seeing the great work that goes on. And because that's always, you know, at the heart of it, uh, it's, you know, getting kids what they need to, you know, to, to learn and to grow. And so both of them were just kind of, I could just tell that they're really going to miss that in the classroom and seeing that stuff kind of happen on the, at the ground level, as opposed to, you know, even when they're in the superintendent role, you're kind of removed from that, but, you know, you still get to, have the chance to pop in and see it. So that that's one thing that really struck me, just the, the definite you know, care for every kid in their district. For sure. Well, we definitely wish these, these two superintendents luck as they enter retirement and also luck to, to our new folks in, in those roles. I'm sure that we'll be chatting with them often. And by we, I mean you, Mitch, <laughs> um, for lots of great stories coming up. So thanks so much. Um, all right, we're going to turn now to Arpen Lobo, who you've been working, you know, not just this this past week, but for quite a length of time about um, water quality issues in West Michigan and all of the various components that come with that, everything from, you know, tourism and, and jobs to bills that are, you know, being passed to, to help maintain um, the water quality that we so appreciate in West Michigan. Um, and this week you had a really interesting story about, you um, something fishy i do not apologize oh, for that pun <laughs> too late to leave. Out in lake Makatawa. You, you want to talk to us about that well uh bad puns aside yeah uh <laughs> this weekend you know a local boater was out on the lake and that's he's a uh a local guy and you know he reached out to us because he told us he saw something really odd that he hadn't seen before and he said there were about 40 dead catfish just um floating and washed up on the shore along uh, Big Bay and Pine Creek Bays in Lake Makatawa. Um, and he was kind of taken back by it, but he reached out to us and he was like, uh, you know, I I'm curious to see what's causing this. And so I was able to speak with a couple different uh, folks that are involved with kind of uh, water quality issues in the area. First, I spoke to Kelly Goward, who's the environmental program manager at the MAC. And then she was like, you know, that's weird, but that's not too uncommon. Uh, can happen um, for things uh, fish kills as they're referred to they can happen when waters get warmer like they will uh, right now because it's the summer and uh, you know the oxygen kind of uh, depletes especially in lakes where there's more plant life and algae and so fish that are at the bottom level of the lake can sometimes get stressed and that's kind of what these mass death events and fish kills are caused by but she said she couldn't uh, confirm that for sure so then I reached out to a couple professors at the GVSU uh, Annis Water Research Institute that's based in Muskegon, but they uh, work uh, in and along Lake Makatawa, in fact, the entire watershed. And they said the same thing, but they were very cautious to say 
without really kind of getting into um, the water and kind of looking at the fish close up. They can't say anything for sure, but they said it was likely uh, lack of oxygen that caused it. Um, and that kind of sparked some some conversations about the broader health of, of Lake Makatawa and the watershed um, for sure. You know, close to 10 years ago in 2012, uh, a lot of coordinating groups, including uh, MAC and the, and the Water Research Institute and I think Hope College and some others are involved in this too. They launched a project called Project Clarity. And the goal of Project Clarity is to improve the, well, clarity of Lake Makatawa and the watershed. And a lot of that has to do with removing phosphorus and other metals and sediments um, from the Lake Makatawa water. And so that was launched te almost 10 years ago with the plan of being a 10-year uh, project. Um, they raised about $12 million in funding, and most of that funding has been spent. They've done things like uh, plant new water um, shed wetlands to kind of uh, put more plants in there that help with water filtration. They also work with local farmers to make sure that the fertilizer and materials that they're using to uh, harvest their crops don't get into the uh, sewer system and therefore into our uh, lake. And so with the project kind of coming down to an end, now those phosphorus levels are still at what they call an undesirable level, but they're definitely better than when the project first began. So I was talking to Kelly Gower and she mentioned to me, he said, you know, we've been doing this for close to 10 years now. And so next year, once the project officially kind of comes to a close, they're going to take a step back. They're going to evaluate the progress they made, and they're going to use that to make decisions on how they're uh, going to best determine the future plans for the health, um, for the, uh, the health of the lake. Sorry. And, uh, you know, I just, I, it's something that a lot of boaters and not so much fishers, um, but a lot of people visit Lake Makatawa. It's right off of Lake Michigan, leads into the lake. And so for locals, it's kind of a place to kind of go and boat um, when maybe the more popular beaches get a bit too busy. And a lot of work is going into kind of making sure the lake and the watershed as a whole uh, gets healthier and can remain healthy. So this kind of weird thing that a boater saw last weekend isn't, a huge alarm, but it's just another uh, thing that researchers have to kind of take into account when they uh, work on projects related to the lake. So I thought that was sure. been interesting this week. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, like you said, if if these oxygen levels really affect those at the very bottom of the lake, those bottom feeders, that would make a lot of sense. You know, if, if the, the vast majority of these fish that the boaters saw um, were catfish that totally, you know, falls in line with that. So that's really interesting to know, because I know sometimes we will get questions from readers saying, you know, oh, I took my family to, to Dutton Park and, you know, we saw near the boat launch, there were like a lot of dead fish. And, you know, that is something that, that happens, especially sometimes in the summer. And we always get a couple of questions of, oh, that didn't that didn't look so great. <laughs> <laughs> what's going on so yeah right. thanks so much for following up on that i really appreciate it all right we're now going to turn to the ongoing saga that uh our business reporter cassie Leibrink is officially an expert on i think um and that is the the kind of ongoing litigation and um i mean just shenanigans um with a local restaurateur who uh refused to abide by COVID-19 restrictions kind of at the height of the pandemic. And that is our Mar Marlena Pavlos Hackney who owns Marlena's Bistro. Um, and, you know, Cassie, it sounds like she's kind of starting to fall in line in order to reopen her business after several months. 
Yeah, you know, it's been um, <laughs> an interesting uh, six months covering this. And I, I should start with the fact that I have not personally spoken to Marlena since December when this uh, story first um, launched. She, uh, I, I did speak to her attorney shortly after he came into the case, um, but not since then. Um, so what we've got from, from the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development, which from here on out, I will refer to as MDARD, and the Allegan County Health Department, so ACHD, um, she has since, uh, since she was first shut down, she has said that she is going to fight, uh, fight the regulations in court. And so now we've got kind of a two-pronged approach where she's still technically fighting in court. Um, just recently last week, one of her motions was denied to reconsider the reconsideration of her being held in contempt of court for not closing the restaurant. So at some point in there, um, a decision was made on her part to cooperate with MDARD and ACHD so that she could reopen. Um, so while the case is still uh, pending in court and both sides are looking for a final resolution on their behalf, so MDARD wants a permanent injunction to keep her restaurant closed until she gets a license. And Marlena, of course, wants her license restored, which the court has said they don't really have jurisdiction to do, um, because that is, of course, um, under MDARD's jurisdiction to take the license away. Um, so on the one hand, we've got that going on. And then on the other hand, we've got this process that has now started of reopening. So according to Marlena on, on social media, she has said that she reached out to ACHD Monday the 21st and said, how do I get reopened? Um, and then, well, she was referred to ACHD. So then she was kind of kicked back and forth between the two organizations. And finally, she was told that she needed to schedule an initial inspection um, with ACHD. So she reached out Friday to get that inspection scheduled. That happened um, this past Wednesday. And she has said that she she did pass that inspection. But MDARD has, has told us that there is a series of, of hoops that she'll need to jump through before that reopening will happen. Um, I'm fully expecting to see that court case end, at least um, in the um, 30th Judicial Circuit Court. Um, whether or not she decides to, to take it to a different level and to, to battle the state in court on a broader scale um, has yet to be seen. She has referenced um, trying a different tactic and saying that she's not going to give up the fight, which, you know, cooperating to reopen doesn't necessarily jive with that message. So uh, it's just going to be a waiting game to see whether she reopens and that's it um, or so whether she decides. Yeah, see, at this point, how long has the restaurant been closed? So she was arrested in March and the restaurant has been closed since then. Okay. I mean, that's quite a length of time of, of lost revenue, I would assume. Yes. Yep. So so it, it remains to be seen whether she will try to um, hold the state responsible for that lost revenue. Um, 
or if she will just sort of let it go and, and be reopened, especially now that there aren't any COVID regulations for restaurants. Um, and I think it is important to note that her decision to reopen um, or to cooperate with that process came the same week that those restrictions were lifted. Gotcha. All right. Well, we certainly will continue to see how this goes. I'm sure that there are, are many in the area who want to go back to her, her restaurant for breakfasts and pizza and whatever else. So um, we will see how that goes for her. Well, thanks so much for, for everybody um, for joining us, including our, our lovely reporters here. Um, we will be back in your news feeds next week with another weekly roundup. Um, on behalf of our lovely reporters, I'm Andra Gamble, and this has been another episode of From the Newsroom.